Let's get our Bibles out and open to the book of James, chapter 3, uh, page 1387 in the Pew Bible. And then there in the back of your Bible, flip over and put a tab at 2 Peter, chapter 1. It'd be a good place to put your marker. James, chapter 3. We're going to have a discussion uh, for a couple weeks. I'm not sure how long. We'll see how it goes about words and the power of words and the tongue. And tonight, since the uh, children are in here with us, it's good that you're in here. We'll uh, have some foundational conversations about some things that will be beneficial and should be uh, very attainable for uh, our one age kids that are here so this should be good for them and maybe give them some understanding about this important issue I want you to realize as we begin this conversation about words and about the uh, the power and nature thereof that this problem the problem that we that that we have with words is universal and all-encompassing in other words that what happens a lot of times the way a conversation or a sermon uh, or a Sunday school class comes about in a scenario where someone is studying through the Bible so like in my life if I'm studying the Bible in some specific area it really doesn't maybe I'm I'm working on a passage in Colossians or I'm uh, reading the scripture in my own devotional time or whatever the case may be there's always these um, issues that are constantly coming up in scripture because this the Bible is not organized in this um, sort of succinct uh, manner like uh, encyclopedia where you flip to the the particular uh, aspect of God or the particular topic that you're interested in and then you just read that portion about that no you don't just open to the chapter that's about the tongue or the power of words but you just as you're reading the Bible you just begin to see these certain things uh, that God has to say about it along the way now it's the same as with any other area of, of life there are constantly all these things going on around us that we don't necessarily see or pay attention to until something happens that catches our attention that makes us sensitive or aware that this problem or issue exists and then suddenly they're everywhere so like for example have you noticed that um, whenever you get a, a, a new car or a different car you see that car everywhere like you did, it wasn't there before, and then you get this car or this van that's new to you, and then everywhere you go at every red light driving down the road, you see people that have the same car that you have. It's not that those cars weren't there before, but you weren't conscious of what was going on because you weren't thinking about it. Well, that's exactly what happens when you're reading the Bible. You're reading the Bible. And there's all of these things that are there in the Scripture all over the place, but you're not conscious of those because you're not thinking about it until suddenly something resonates in your heart, and then you begin to meditate or dwell on this issue, and then you start realizing that it's everywhere. It's the same exact principle. And so, with regards to words, 
I was just realizing the things that the Scripture has to say about words and our tongue. And, and obviously, there's some uh, passages in the book of James that are very famous and well-known about the tongue and so on and so forth. But I want you to look at James chapter 3, verse 2 to sort of set the tone for this. The Scripture says, For we all stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle the whole body. Now, that's a shocking statement. In other words, that here we have, think about other places in Scripture where you have read where the Bible just talks about something as just a universal problem that everyone has in common, that everyone struggles with in, in, in all areas of life, but, he, but that is specific in nature. In other words, the Bible says things like, if you say you have no sin, you're a liar and the truth is not in you. But we're not talking about saying we have no sin. We're talking about one specific area where we struggle, and yet the Bible says this is common to all people. And I, and I thought about that, and I thought about how well, there are certain things that are probably common to all men, or most men, and there are certain things that are probably common to most women. There are certain things that are, you know, that, I mean, I guess there's some things, obviously, like all of us have times in our life where pride is an issue, and all of us uh, struggle with lust in some way. It could be the lust for material things or it could be, you know, physical lust or different things of that nature. But here the Bible says that we all stumble in many ways. I, I think that we ought to have a conversation about an area where we all stumble in many ways. So let's pray and ask God to help us do that. Father, we thank you for your word. We confess before you now that it's perfect and errant in every way, that it's not only applicable to us, but it is intended for us, Lord. And we pray that tonight you'll help us, help us to have ears to hear that it might do the perfect work it's intended to do in our hearts. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Now here's what happens. We we get into a church culture or a Christian environment and we learn very early on to filter um, our behavior because we're, we're in an environment where there are certain things obviously that are unacceptable and so we want to filter it. We, we want to we you know, rein in certain things that uh, ought not be. Now, we can filter our behavior. We can uh, conform our behavior. We can, we can practice behavior modification for a certain amount of time. But we can do that for a long time if we're only doing that in one little quadrant of our life. In other words, if my goal is just to behave and act Christian while I'm at church, I can pull that off for a long time because I'm only here for a couple hours a week, right? I mean, you're only here for a couple hours a week. So you could do that for a long time. Now, if you, if you say, well, what I'm going to do is I'm going I'm to modify my behavior so that when I'm at work, I'm this. Now, that's going to be a greater challenge because you're at work for 
many more hours a week than you are at, at church. But still, you could probably, you know, to a degree, pull that off as long as things didn't get too crazy. Because, you know, when we get emotional and we get, when things unexpected happen, that's when we start slipping up. But we could do that for a while. But you, you can't do that with your, your words. They're almost impossible to filter. You can filter them some, but I think that words are far uh, more challenging to filter than behavior. And here's why. The scripture says in Matthew chapter 15, this isn't new news to any of you. But those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and they defile a man. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, and blasphemies. Now, if our words funnel from our heart, and if we all struggle and stumble in many ways with regards to our words, then we've got some serious heart issues, wouldn't you say? I mean, I'm just connecting the dots here. The Scripture says we all stumble in many ways with regards to words. And the Scripture says that words come from the heart. Then we've got a heart problem. We've got a word problem that underneath that is a heart problem. And so what we realize is that really um, modifying our behavior is going to be of little value if our heart is wrong. If the thoughts and intentions of our heart, which is where God looks, are wrong, we're going to have a problem. Now, the Scripture also says about the heart in Proverbs 4.23 that we should keep it with all diligence, for out of it spring the issues of life. So again, if you just keep dropping breadcrumbs along this trail, and you say, now, we all stumble in many ways with regards to words. Words emanate from the heart. It's the heart that really produces the words that, that come out of our mouth. And from the heart spring the issues of life. Good gracious, we've got a problem. And then this morning I quoted Proverbs 18.21 that says, Death and life are in the power of the tongue. And so, goodness, we should have a conversation or several conversations, or a sequence of conversations about words and about our heart and about how all these things might fit together. Now you can look at 2 Peter chapter 1, or these verses will come up on the screen, but I want us to just kind of dissect this passage of Scripture, again, which isn't specifically about words, but it is about words because it is about the heart, and it is about us as the people of God. 2 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 5. The Bible says, But also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to your virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. For if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. 
Now, you should definitely make it a point to spend some time in 2 Peter chapter 1. That passage of Scripture right there is a very important passage. They're all important, but this passage is so very telling and has such value um, to just its instructiveness to us. It's really shocking in the reality that here the Scripture is saying you can be saved and be barren and unproductive in your life as a Christian. Now, I mean, that may not seem as a big shock to you. You might say, well, I know a lot of Christians who seem barren and unproductive, but, you know, I, my theology is such that when I see people that are barren and unproductive, I have a tendency to lean towards, well, they're probably not a Christian. And here's why. Because if you are a Christian, then you have unlimited access to the full wealth of the gospel and all of the the promises of God, not to mention the fact that you have the supernatural power of God dwelling within you. So it would be very, it just seems hard to convince me or most people who understand the scripture that you could you could have all that and yet be barren and unproductive that you could live a life of ineffectiveness connected to all these resources that the bible assumes this certain harvest comes from a christian's life that there are just certain byproducts you know you can take the the um the fruit of the Spirit from Galatians, or you could, whatever, the, whatever passage you want, that the Bible assumes this certain uh, harvest comes out of the life of believers, and yet here we see an instance where somebody who is a believer, yet they're ineffective and unproductive. Hmm. Now, How does this connect to what rules our heart will shape our words and what shapes our words will expose our heart and what's in our heart is going to affect all the issues of life? That all these things are all sort of intertwined and connected. What are the qualities that are absent or that are not ruling in the heart of someone who is unproductive? Look at... Um, in other words, like at verse 9 there, for he who lacks these things, what are these things? Or verse 8, for if these things are yours and abound, what are these things? Well, these things are that list of things that we find in 5, 6, and 7. And so then I started looking at this, and I started thinking about giving all diligence. Now I'm going to add to your faith. So faith is there. But we're going to add to this faith that's there, virtue, which is really character. That's what that word means. To virtue, knowledge. So we're going to, we're going to, take, this, we're going to take the faith that we have. We're, this is already a converted person. We're going to add character and knowledge and then self-control and then 
from self-control. We're going to persevere. We're going to have perseverance, which is going to lead us to godliness. Godliness is going to lead us to kindness towards others, uh, which is going to lead us to love. Hmm. So what is the problem with the person described in 2 Peter chapter 1 who is ineffective and unproductive? If you had to sum that up, all of those things that it says, what, what is the issue at hand? In other words, what's caused them to be short-sighted even unto blindness and forgotten that they were cleansed of their old sins. It's an identity problem. You see what the problem here is? They don't know who they are. They are a Christian, but they don't know. They, they, they don't know who they are in Christ. They have a disconnect in their identity. And what forms our identity? Well, these words that are embedded in our heart. Because these words that are in our heart come up out through our mouth, but not all of them make it through our mouth. Some of them, some of them come up through our mouth and into our own head. That we don't, they don't audibly come out of our mouth, but they're still words spoken nonetheless. We're just the only ones listening to them, right? Yeah. You talk to yourself all the time. You, the, the, the most familiar voice in your life is your own. It's your own voice. Have you ever noticed that when you, um, when you hear yourself talking on a recording, you, you're always, when you're not, I mean, you, you think, do I sound like that? Right? God forbid you hear yourself singing on a recording. You're like, wow, I am good. I am really talented, I tell you. But then you get used to, in other words, I don't, when I hear my voice on a recording, it doesn't sound strange to me because I'm used to it. But, but yet you listen to yourself all day long, every day of your life, but it doesn't come out of your mouth. It's not through your vocal cords. It's just you have this voice that's your voice in your head that, you, that you're used to hearing that you know is you, but it doesn't come through your mouth, Right? And so you are shaping your identity through these words that are in your heart that are coming up through you. And so it's not just the words that come out of your mouth, although those expose your heart as well. But then these words and their power and, the, and out of them come, the, from the heart come the, the spring, all the issues of life. And so then I'm thinking about all this, and I'm thinking about this identity crisis of this person that Second Peter's describing. And I'm thinking about what is this person, what are they saying to themselves? How did we learn how to speak to ourselves? How did you learn to talk to yourself? What are the most familiar 
statements that you make in your own mind to yourself. And where do they come from? You learned those when you were a child. You learned those because in some formative area of your life, those things were either spoken to you audibly, and so then you began to repeat them and they began to shape and form your identity, or they were just implied to you. They didn't necessarily need to be spoken to you. Sometimes someone could just tell you that you're, they think that you're stupid over and over and over until you begin to tell yourself that you're stupid. But maybe it wasn't that someone told you that you were stupid. Maybe it was someone just treated you as if you were, which then accustomed you to then speaking to yourself as if you were stupid, which pretty soon leads to you've conditioned yourself to tell yourself or to speak to yourself as if you were stupid, which then creates this identity in you which then begins to shape you, which then you bring all of that baggage to, at some point, to the cross. God saves you and renews you. And then what? The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5, He died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves. That that we'd live differently. That things would change, that we're a new creation, that we're not who we used to be, that things have now been adjusted, they've been, they've been reformed, reshaped, but we still have these words floating around inside of us. And so if in the, the mundane, daily moments of our life we forget who we are in Christ, forget that we've been cleansed of our old sins. See, see when, when I repeat the things that I've taught myself to say to myself, the way they have no power is when I remind myself that I've been cleansed of my old sins. You see, that I'm clean, that I'm cleansed, that I'm new, that I'm forgiven, Right? See, that you, you completely unplug, you completely remove the power from the things that you say to yourself when you remind yourself of the gospel and who you are in the gospel, that those old things don't. You see, then I'm not condemned by what I used to be because I'm empowered by what I now am, right? That's why a Christian is not, is not necessarily proud of the person that they used to be, but they're... They, they are not unwilling to talk about it because you, you're, you're, your life becomes an open book because that's no longer true of you. See, I don't mind talking about things that are no longer true of me. What I'm sensitive about is what I'm still struggling with, right? Yeah. So we've got children in here tonight, and I'm thinking about how they're forming the way that they talk to themselves in their head that is shaping their identity. You see, they're not old on the other side of this like so many of us are where we've, we've conditioned ourselves to say the same. This is, why, this is why you tend to struggle. We all tend to struggle. We have these specific 
areas of weakness that are perpetually a problem for us. Why? In other words, do you think that the reason that you, that you have a tendency to be weak in, in X area of your life is the reason that that's true of you because in that area of your life you have a less sufficient amount of God's supernatural power in your life in that area? No. You, of course not. So then why is it? If it's not, if, if, if God has universally empowered you to overcome whatever it is that you're facing in your life, but you are perpetually weak in a certain area, then if it's not God's deficiency, it must be your deficiency and my deficiency in that area. And then if that's the case, it must be linked to something that's going on in our heart. And the way we can discern that is by the words that come out of our mouth, whether they're spoken audibly or to ourselves. You see the thinking here? And so you just begin to, to pull this stuff apart and you realize that if we forget who we are in Christ in the everyday moments of our life, then some other thing other than the gospel is going to form our identity because you cannot, you cannot exist without an identity. It's like breathing. You can't, you've never lived a day of your life without worshiping something. Never. Not one moment of your life have you ever lived without worshiping something. Everyone must worship something all the time. Everyone must breathe all the time. Everyone must have an identity all the time. The identity is linked to the worship. Whatever it is we're worshiping is going to be connected to our, our, our identity. So a person who finds their identity, in other words, sees themselves as, not as a uh, child of Christ, not as a uh, saved, forgiven, empowered, adopted child of Christ, but maybe as a nurse or a school teacher or a factory worker or whatever the case may be, that your occupation or vocation has become your identity, well then th what you're doing is you're worshiping at the altar of your job and your job is determining your identity and that's what your identity is. Now, if you think of yourself as a person who has this vocation but who goes to church, then you're still, your, your identity is linked first and foremost to that thing that is shaping you, whatever's the first thing on that list, whatever you're worshiping. But if it's, first of all, I'm a Christian who happens to be a school teacher or a factory worker or a student or whatever it is. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Christian who happens to attend this school or happens to live in this neighborhood, happens to attend this church, or happens to whatever else I do, is all done in the context of I'm a Christian, then something changes. Let me show you this in a passage in Proverbs that uh, Rod and Casey just allowed us in. Proverbs chapter 18, this will come up on the screen. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and are safe. Now, what is the name of the Lord? 
Now, he didn't know I was going to use this passage. Ooh. See how spiritual he is? The name of the Lord is a strong tower. I know Casey chose that song, didn't she? It's a strong tower. What does that mean, the name of the Lord? What is the name of the Lord? You mean his name like Tony or Rod or Fred or Bob? or What do you mean the name? Of, what is the name of the Lord? What do you run? You, you just run when you know something happens. You just start shouting out the name of the Lord. Which name? The Lord has many names. The name of the Lord, the name is the character and the nature of God. It's the reality of who God actually is. In other words, the, 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 I know God and who God is because I know, the na- I know God's name. I know the, the name is expressive in Scripture of who the person is. And so by knowing that, by identifying with that, the righteous run to it and are safe. But the, notice what the very next verse is after that in Proverbs 18. The rich man's wealth is his strong city. And like a high wall in his own esteem. Now, just think about that for a second. What Proverbs 18.11 is saying is that the wealth of a rich man becomes his fortified city, becomes his refuge, becomes his, his safety, his sanctuary. So he has amassed money. He's identified himself as successful and wealthy. Therefore, his identity is based in that. He finds his security in that. But now notice what the Bible says. But the protection is in his imagination. It's all in his own esteem. In other words, the Scripture is saying to him, he lives in fantasy that these walls are too high to scale and that his money will protect him from whatever marauders or intruders seek to come and pillage his city. But it's not true. It's in his own esteem. And so it's shaped his... Now, here you have something we would just regularly sing of, and yet in Scripture... Proverbs 18, 10, and 11 give you such a great picture of identity. On one hand, you have the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and find safety and security. On the other hand, you have this person whose identity is in his wealth that he's amassed. That's his strong tower. And he, in his own imagination, believes that to be High walls that will protect him. But in reality, it's just not true. Now, you don't think that words and identity have power in the way that to, to shape all of the aspects or, this, or all of the things that spring forth that create life? Hmm. I think that what, what we want to establish in our hearts as we're starting to think this through is that we better condition our hearts and our minds, the words that we use, 
to remind ourselves, to speak to ourselves the reality of who God is so that we're continually shaping our identity in the gospel. Now, if I'm reminding myself of who God is, if I'm speaking to myself from what the Scripture has taught me about who God is, what is the automatic byproduct of that? What am I, if I'm learning, if I'm speaking to myself, the truth from Scripture about who God is, then in order for that to happen... I must simultaneously be learning something else. You cannot have one thing happening without another thing. In order for that to happen, in order for me to talk to myself about who God really is based on Scripture, then I automatically, by default, am also learning about who I'm not. Right? Yeah. You see, if you don't know who God is then you're confused about who you are. The more you know about who God is, the more you understand about who you're not. Right? Yes. I mean, this seems simple, but this is very profound, helpful information. We want to remind ourselves of who God is and deprogram ourselves about who we've convinced ourselves to be, which is false. And I don't want to be a, a person who has is, who is built this fantasy that, that the riches that I've amassed are my security when, in fact, it's all imaginary. So the first time marauders come, what do they do? They pillage me. That I'm defenseless against my enemies because I've built imaginary walls. So how do I solve that problem? Words that are in my heart, that are flowing out of me and into my head, those words need to be words that are reminding me of who God really is based on not who I think he is. The only way I can know who he really is is by what he says about him. But the more I know about what he says about him, the more I have to know about who I'm not. And that is a tremendous, tremendous value. So, back to that uh, passage in 2 Peter chapter 1. Now, I'm thinking about all this, and I'm, I'm several months ago, I'm sitting at my, my desk, and I'm drawing this flow chart, and I'm drawing these shapes, and I'm just trying to make some visual of all this stuff jumbled up that I'm talking about. I'm t and I'm thinking about what the Scripture says about words and where words come from and then how words shape our identity and then what happens to our identity. And I'm putting arrows to everything, just trying to get a, a visual picture of what, what I'm dealing with here. And then when I got done sort of uh, figuring out this loop that just goes around between What's in here comes up out of here and into here that shapes my identity. And then what happens with my identity and how all that works together. Then I go back and I'm looking at this passage and I'm thinking about the, all of these specific things that are in 2 Peter chapter 1. That I'm to be giving all diligence to. Virtue, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness. And I... I started looking at these things and I started thinking, now where, where do 
we tend to get hung up in this process. So we're a Christian, and in order to be a Christian, you have to have faith because you can't, you can't uh, come to Christ without faith. So it's impossible to please God without faith. So we know that. So you have to have faith. And then character. And so as we're going, uh, we're you know, developing character. But a lot of times character can be slippery because uh, character, true character is who you are when no one's looking. The problem about that is that when no one's looking, I'm not looking. So the only person I see when no one's looking is me. So it's, it's hard to really discern other people's character because it's such a slippery thing that we can sort of camouflage that uh, issue of virtue through our behavior modification. And then I'm thinking about this issue of knowledge, and I'm thinking about how, well, we, you know, we're, we, we grow and we learn things and we go. But then I get to this issue of self-control. And I go, here is where the train usually leaves the tracks. We stumble along the way and have trouble with our, our character and, 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 and trouble in our knowledge. But self-control, this issue of self-control with regards to these things that we tell ourselves. Now, let me qualify this by saying, first of all, in a perfect world, we would all grow up in an environment where we are nurtured in the gospel so that it won't prevent us from telling ourselves things that are um, untrue and that are warping our identity and that could potentially make us unproductive as a, in our Christian life. But at least that we could minimize those things. But the reality is, is that Apart from some of the uh, small children that are in here, most of us adults, well, we didn't have that luxury. We grew up hearing things, repeating things, learning things about ourselves that were untrue. And so we continually lie to ourselves, and, and those things are shaping our identity, and they're devastating us because... We're forgetting who we are in the gospel, and then we become unproductive. Now, how do we stop? In other words, I could stand here all day, and I could say, now, here's what you need to do. Stop lying to yourself. Okay, well, how do I do that? Well, tell yourself the truth. Well, how do I do that? Well, then, every time you say something to yourself that's not true, you, you know, tell your, replace it with something that is true. Now, that's the practice of taking off and putting on, and, and it would be productive there. That's not the problem. The problem is consistently doing that. In other words, it takes self-control to be able to consistently tell yourself the truth, reject what is untrue, and reshape your identity in who you are in Christ. That takes self-control. And that's where we break down. I would say self-control. Here would be my definition of self-control. The ability to choose the important thing over the urgent thing at any given moment because your passions and desires are properly ordered. Because here's, here's self-control revolves around us chasing our passions and desires because we're, we're in the 
we're, we're flippant. We are under the tyranny of the urgent. So what, what, in the moment, in the heat of the moment, we, we jump after the things that we want and desire, which are wrong things, they're, they're not properly ordered, and that it, we lack self-control. But to have self-control, we want to choose the important thing, the right thing, the true thing in that moment, not the thing that is uh, just there for us or led by our, our wrong, uh, wrongly ordered passions and desires. All right, so let's, let's look at a passage of Scripture that will help us with that. So, for example, the Bible says in Proverbs 25, Whoever has no rule over his own spirit, rule over your own spirit. You know what that is? Self-control, that's what that is. Rule over your own spirit. Whoever has no self-control is like a city with broken down walls. Broken down city with no walls. Hmm. So, what is a city broken down with no walls? Well, it is a defenseless city. It's a a disaster. It's going to be a reproach. It's going to be an embarrassment. It's going to be the epitome of unproductive and fruitless. Why? Because it has no defense. So then, look at Nehemiah chapter 1. These verses will come up. Here's what the Bible says. If Nehemiah is a book about rebuilding walls around Jerusalem, which it is, then how do we even get into the conversation about building walls? Because in chapter 1, Hananiah, this man Hananiah, comes to Nehemiah. He's one of the brethren. He comes from the men of Judah. And Nehemiah asked him concerning the Jews who had escaped the captivity, who had survived the captivity and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the survivors who are left from the captivity in the province are there in great distress and reproach. And why are they in great distress and reproach? Because the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are burned with fire. So the city is still the city. The people who belong there are there. But the problem is that there's no walls to protect it. If there's no walls to protect it, then the people are there, the physical city is there, but they're defenseless against anything, and they become a reproach. They become basically distressed, unproductive, and unfruitful, and unable to move forward. So Nehemiah's response to the fact that the walls are broken down and that the people are reproached and unproductive are, he says in verse 4, So I was, when I heard these words, I sat down and I wept and I mourned for many days. And I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Remember, we studied through Nehemiah and we talked about for three months he was broken over the reproach of the city because it had no walls. Now, back to what I said. Whoever has no self-control... Whoever has no self-control is likened to a city with no walls. And then the Bible teaches us that a city with no walls is a reproach. It's a distress. It's a grief to those who are pursuing and identifying with God. Defenseless against the chaos 
of our lives. Now remember, I'm talking about self-control. Now if we're defenseless against the chaos of our lives, what do you think happens to a person who's defenseless against the chaos that's in our life with regards to self-control? If self-control is resisting that the urgent and choosing the important with right structured priorities, it's going to be a disaster, right? Well, yes. You're, you're not going to be able to have any self-control. You're not going to be able to... to uh, choose the important thing, but you're always going to be chasing after the chaotic, urgent thing or whatever it is. And so there's not going to be any self-control. So if there's no self-control, you're not going to be able to, to apply that to these words that you're continually repeating out of your mouth or to yourself that are shaping your identity, that are causing you to forget who you are in Christ, that are making you unproductive and unfruitful as a Christian. You see, we're just kind of going in, in, in circles. Every circle just loops back again and again. It's the same circle, isn't it? Yeah, it's the same. You, we, could just, we could sit here all night and go through the New Testament and just go around this little circle until I finally convinced everybody in here how drastically important what we're talking about is. Galatians chapter 5, verse 17, the Apostle Paul says, For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. And the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. And they're opposed. They're contrary to one another. They, they're, they're banging into each other in opposition. To keep you from doing the things you want to do. The Spirit is there to enable you to have self-control, to withstand the, the urgent urge to do something, to follow and pursue wrong desires. So how am I going to get control of these words that are in my heart, that are convincing me of who I am, that are impacting and affecting how I respond to the gospel and my identity, that are then shaping my life as a believer? How am I going to do that? I'm going to have to rely on the power of the Spirit within me I'm going to have to rely on the power of the Spirit within me that's contrary to the flesh that's trying to defraud me. And in the power of that Spirit, I'm going to have to have self-control to continually remind myself and say to myself what is true about me in the gospel. And if I don't do that, I'm going, to, I'm going to constantly be fighting this, this undertow current that's sucking me out into something that I, some place that I ought not be. That's, that's, constant, there's, that's constantly pulling me, this current is constantly pulling you out of a position of fruitfulness and, and, uh, and God-glorifying uh, life in Christ to this unfruitful, unproductive existence because that's what the world wants you to be. So how do I fight against that? What, I need, give me something to, uh, to sink my teeth into. Okay, well, that's what I'm going to do and then we're going to be done. A couple things. Desire. Your desire tonight, and, and I, I promise you that some of you 
are stumbling over this hurdle right now. Your desire is not going to determine your success in this arena. In other words, if right now you are saying to yourself, I want that so bad. I say things to myself that are so wrong over and over all day long, and I'm so sick and tired of it, and I'm listening to everything you're saying, Pastor Tony, and I'm not going to do that anymore. Well, forget it. If you think your desire to change is going to lead you to change, you're wrong. It's not going to happen. Desire is insufficient. You need something more than desire. You need discipline. You need discipline. Wanting it, listen, wanting it is not enough. You know why? Because want is a desire, and desires are fleeting. I mean, I may want something right now, but then a few minutes later, I want something else. So like one minute, I really want a piece of cake. But then I find out we have ice cream. Suddenly, I've lost track of the cake, and I'm hunting after the ice cream, right? Then I find out we have a bag of ground-up Heath bar, and I could care less about anything else in the world. I'm pouring that sucker down my throat. See? And so desire's fleeting. You, desire, you can't, you know, it, desire fools us. In the moment that desire is, it seems good about something, we want to pounce on it and go, that's going to get me there. But no, even desire for something good is fleeting because it's desire. What we need is discipline. Notice that the, the Scripture didn't say that, that what we needed to be doing in 2 Peter chapter 1, it never mentioned desire. It mentioned self-control. Fruit, a fruit of the Spirit is self-control. It's not desire. Desire is a, is a, it emanates out of our flesh a lot of times. And so it's not enough. Wanting it is not enough. A desire to do good is not enough. It's not going to make you do good. A desire to behave better is not going to make you behave better. A a desire to read your Bible every day is not going to make you read your Bible every day. It's not going to do it. The reason so many people try to do something and they fail is because they think desire is enough to take them there. It's not. You are a person who has flesh within you and your desires are untrustworthy. You need discipline. And you got to discipline yourself so that you're like a fortified city, so that you protect yourselves. And so you need to, you need to discipline yourself. You need, to, you need to harness the power of discipline that God has given you through the truth of the promises of the Word of God. And you need to repeat these things to yourself continuously. Who am I? And then when I read this to you, All of you parents in the room can say, now, here's what I need to to continually pour into my children. Back to 2 Peter chapter 1. Remember, we started all this, then I'm done. We started all this in James chapter 3 verse 2 that says, we all stumble in many ways. Because anyone who doesn't stumble in word is a perfect man. So we all stumble in many ways. Remember, we're all stumblers in many ways. Now, what we want to do is we want to harness discipline at telling ourselves the truth that we would reshape our identity correctly, that we might be fruitful and productive in our life in Christ. Now, how are we going to do that? 2 Peter chapter 1, before the verses that we read, here's what the Bible says. 
beginning in verse 3. As His divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Now let's just think about this for one second. Here the scripture says, back up to verse 3. Look at verse 3. As his divine power has given to us. What is the tense of has given to us? If it was past tense, it would say that it had been given to us. But it has been. In other words, so it's in the perfect tense. So it is telling us there, there's a completed a- action in the past, but that has continuing results in the future. So it is a definitive, completed, past occurrence that has continuing results in the future. So the Bible is saying that what is already accomplished in you at the moment of salvation that has continuing results in the future is that you have been given all things that pertain to life and godliness. Now, if you base your identity on the reality that you have been given all things that pertain to life and godliness, what is going to happen? If the voice, if the words that are coming out of your heart that are speaking to your head are continually reminding yourself that I have been given all things that pertain to life and godliness. That every time you approach something that makes you feel deficient or condemned or or unable or unworthy, all of those things are obliterated by the reality that you've been given and are continually receiving the results of, the benefits of, the reality that you've been given all things. Do you see this? That what if, what if you could back up and grow up in a home where you were continually reminded that you had been given all things that pertain to life and godliness in Christ through the knowledge of Him who called you? Again, you've been called. He called you. The knowledge of him who called you. you. You couldn't be a Christian if you hadn't been called. If you didn't have a knowledge of him who called you, you couldn't be saved. Here you are, given all these things through him who's called you by glory and virtue by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature. Remember we said, are you getting a circle here? Remember we said, what, it's your name is a strong tower. And what is the name? The name is the nature, the character and nature of who it is. The gospel is telling you that you have access to the divine, to the divine nature, which is what? It's your strong tower. You run into it and you're safe. You see, all of these things connect together. And so now you've been given all these things and you have access to these through these precious promises and you're a partaker of the divine nature having escaped. You've escaped. You've broken out of the prison of all the things that for so long you told yourself that were untrue that you started believing. You've, been, you've escaped that corruption that is in the world through lust. Come on now. Let's just 
think for a moment. What in the world happens to the words in our heart? When the words in our heart are reminding us of the reality of the gospel that are then shaping our identity, which are then shaping all of these aspects of our life that allow us to live as a Christian. And so maybe maybe tonight or maybe at some point in the past, maybe you've, you've felt like basically all I have is salvation. In other words... I know I'm saved, but that's all I got. Beyond that, I'm just a a struggler. So then the Bible's saying to you tonight, that's because you've forgotten that you've been cleansed of your old sins, right? You become unproductive and unfruitful. How did you do that? Because you've forgotten. How did I forget? Because my identity got shaped by something else. Well, how did my identity get shaped by something else? Because the words that are coming up out of me have shaped my identity. Well, how did those words get in there? Because those words got in there from some other something else outside of the reality of Scripture. So if you wake up tomorrow morning and all you know is that you are saved, If that's all you know, and you say to yourself all day tomorrow, I have been given all things that pertain to life and godliness. I have been given all things that pertain to life and godliness. I have exceedingly great and precious promises through which I have access to the divine nature. You see, because I've, ex- I've escaped the corruption that I used to be. You see? All because of words that are in our heart, that are confusing us and condemning us and lying to us. They're untruthful. And the next thing you know, here we are, unproductive, broken, unfruitful, and yet we have access to you see, you've always got access. So let's just suppose tonight that, that, that I told you, I said, okay, I want everybody to reach under the pew where you're sitting and feel under there and pull that key out. And so you all pull this shiny gold key out from under the pew. I said, now I want you to take this key. That key is for you. And that key is a key to the, the biggest, most beautiful, expansive, amazing, unbelievable mansion that you could ever imagine. And all of you now have a key to that mansion. You can use it anytime you want. You can go there anytime you want. You can enjoy all the blessings. You can go there and you can just live like a, a king or a queen. You can swim in the pool. You can go to the spa. You can eat in the dining hall. You have a key to it. You can. I want you to use this mansion as if it's yours. 
I'm giving you a key to it. In other words, if I gave you a key to my house, it would definitely not be like this mansion. But at least what I'd be saying is you can have access to my house as if you were part of my family. I'm giving you a key to this mansion as if you were part of my, my, my family. And you can use it all you want. You can come and go as you please. You have 24-hour, 365-day-a-year access. You take this key and put it on your key ring, and it's yours. Wow, thank you, Pastor, how wonderful that is. And then you left here tonight, and you never gave it another thought. And you walked around for the rest of your life with that key in your pocket. And you possessed that key, and it was the right key, and that key would open the door every time the first try. It's not a trick. It's not a scam. It's the right key. But what good would the key do if you never, if you never walked up to the door, slid it in the lock, turned it, walked in, and experienced what was there? You see... People, if we're not careful, we can grow up around the gospel such that we get this key and we possess this key. Or even our children will possess this key. And they'll have it and we'll think, oh, I'm so thankful that all of my children have a key to the mansion. Really? I mean, I'm glad they have a key. But wouldn't it be better if they have a key and they use the key and they go there and they enjoy all that it has to offer? Yeah. And so how, how are we going to do that? If we don't get control of these words in our heart that are coming up and shaping our identity, we'll just walk around with a key that we never use. To a mansion we've heard about, we talk about, we sing about, but we've never been there. We've never really experienced it ourselves. And whenever we're around other people and they're talking about how wonderful it is and how great it is, something longs in our heart to be like them. And, and we think, well, one day I hope to get to go there. And one day, and the whole time you've got the key right there in your pocket on your key ring, the same key that they have. It's right there. What is this key? The key is right there in 2 Peter chapter 1. You have access you have the key in salvation to His divine glory, to all of His promises. You have been given everything that pertains to life and godliness. Now you tell yourself that every day. And I guarantee you, your identity is going sh- to change. And it's going to form around what it ought to be. And all the, the corruption of the lusts of your past life are going to lose their power and authority. Because no matter how horrible the things that were told to you over and over and over, how embedded they may be in your mind, they can't stand against that key. They have no... Listen. The words of the most prominent person in your life repeating to you over and over cannot withstand. They cannot defeat the power that the creator of the universe, the sovereign God, the King of kings and Lord of lords said no. You have already been given everything that pertained to life and godliness. Now, how crazy would it be if you ended up living as a Christian unfruitful and unproductive? 